Welcome to the Real Self University podcast. I'm Eva Shea, your host and director of practice development at Real Self. My guest for this episode is Ed Searing, who is not only a very entertaining speaker with no shortage of useful stories to tell, he's also the executive vice president of Yellow Telescope, SEO Oversight, and Ice Cream Social Media based in Miami, Florida. Ed has worked with over 10,000 patients and hundreds of practices throughout his career. My guest on the podcast today is Ed Searing from Yellow Telescope. Ed, you've been working in this space for a very long time, and I think your perspective on what's happening is really important because you see so much in so many different places that you're uniquely able to tie it all together and really come up with solutions that help everybody and not just problem solve in one place, but use what people are learning, you know, in one office and and then share that with the rest of your universe so that everyone's mm-hmm. improving. And that's really important. So tell us a little bit about your career, how long you've been consulting and how, how you got started in this interesting world. Sure. Well, uh, thanks for the kind words, Eva. Certainly something that we aspire to do is to learn a whole bunch and share all of it if we can. And uh, of course, thanks for having us as well. It's, we're, we're excited to be an affiliate and excited to be here. As far as my personal background, I actually uh, was asked by uh, my partner, our president, John Hoffenberg, in like late 2008 to start doing some consulting and sales work for a facial plastic surgeon in Miami. And of course, you know, being a guy in my 20s, I thought, well, I don't know anything about this. What what are you talking about? But John and I, of course, had worked uh, very closely together in uh, prior lives and gave it a shot, Uh, moved to Miami. Uh, and started working for a facial plastic surgeon as a patient care coordinator. And he was already doing quite well, had quite an international presence, but uh, basically took a lot of the sales processes, uh, psychology that uh, had worked well for us in other industries and began applying it to plastic surgery. And particularly when it comes to uh, the psychology of how people make these decisions, et cetera. And we were, you know, uh, lucky enough to have our the first practice we ever work with sort of provide as practice really as sort of our laboratory to A, B test things that were working with regard to particular processes. So over the course of about uh, five years, uh, I was a full-time patient care coordinator for his practice, following up with hundreds of leads a week and things like that. So uh, it, was a, it was a busy few years, particularly as we were honing in on our model to help other practices. And then since then, I actually started a lot in the uh, training of patient care coordinators uh, and also doctors to some extent, even in those earlier years. And then uh, for the last uh, about five or six years, I've been full-time consulting uh, with practices with their sales, marketing, staffing, management of teams, as well as uh, best practices for, for growth. It's a little unusual to see a male patient care coordinator. <laughs> Indeed. What, what kind of advantages do you think that you had being the opposite of what we usually see in that role? Well, it was kind of funny. I mean, in the early days, you know, we still joke that we were kind of the unicorns within the industry. I think part of it was it was a facial plastics practice. But even in that specialty, originally the doctor didn't even want me to speak to female patients. Uh, he literally said, Ed is not allowed to talk to women very early on because he was so afraid that no one would convert to a surgery because a guy in his 20s couldn't relate with a woman in her 60s or 70s for a facelift, for example. Now, of course, luckily he was incorrect and we got to the point where after a month or a couple of months in the role and I was much more comfortable with the procedures, et cetera, I just sort of snuck one in and she booked and of course went to the doctor and said, hey, so 
anyway, I just want to give you the chart for this particular patient. And he's like, oh, cool. Whose patient is this? Like we had several coordinators in the office. I'm like, oh, it's mine. And he's sort of puzzled looking at, he's like, looks at the name again. And I'm like, yep, it's all good. She booked. And he sort of, from that day on, was a little bit more trusting, but it took years to kind of earn that trust. But it was kind of fun too. And we show up at meetings and like the one we're here in San Diego, show up and they're like, wait, you're, your coordinator? You're not like doing marketing or something else? Like, well, no. I mean, as far as an advantage was concerned, I think, I don't know if there was any particular advantage. If nothing else, it was just mostly amusing that we were the unicorns. But I think that regardless of male, female, you know, I'm, I'm giving a talk later here at the meeting about staffing and kind of what to look for in a coordinator. And it is obviously a very female dominated position. And I think that sometimes it's one of the pitfalls that a lot of practices fall into thinking they can only hire a woman for the job. Um, but um, with that said, we're always looking for the right qualities right, in that person, regardless of the gender, of course. So what are those qualities that you look for? You spend a lot of time helping practices hire. So you've mm-hmm. really honed in on the things that are the most important. And in fact, you're talking about that at the meeting today. So what's the first one? Ah, well, I'm, I'm, the title of my talk is the 10 best. So we'll, we'll certainly narrow it down. I, I think it, it, it's a variety of things. The number one thing that I'm going to be talking about is being open-minded. And I think that partially because we, from a, from a very personal perspective, we work with a very particular process that we've developed and uh, proven over many practices, but it's very, very counterintuitive. And so for us to be able to help a practice implement it, we can really only work with patient care coordinators who are particularly open to change, learning new things. But one of the points I'm going to be making today is that even if you've got a very tenured patient coordinator, practice coordinator, practice manager, anybody that's even related to that sales role uh, that's been in the practice for, say, decades. They could be very, very good, intrinsically excellent with patients, excellent with the team and staff, great working relationship with the doctor. But if they're not open to learning new things, if they're not open to being somewhat nimble with the changes in the industry, changes in the, the, the needs of the practice as time goes on, then we like to say they, they sort of dinosaur out. They sort of become extinct. And so... I also think that in a lot of ways, loyalty is a two-way street. You know, doctors are sort of fiercely loyal. It's one of the things I love about working with them. And at the same time, it can also be a bit of a double-edged sword because it, it sometimes can bite them in the backside, if you will, sometimes because at the same time, they're so loyal to somebody else who's being loyal to them, but then they don't necessarily expect anything greater from them as from a changing perspective. So just being open-minded to, to, to changing new things is, is so important. And the doctor also needs to support that change or that that uh, approach to changing for that patient coordinator too. Because if you're asking the the patient coordinator to change and the doctor's not coming behind that and saying this is what I want, mm-hmm. then you're also set up for disaster. Is, is there any kind of do you have an anecdote or a story about a situation where that didn't go the way that you thought it should and? Does anything come to mind? Where like the doctor was suggesting a change and the doctor the, wanted you to make the change for him, but then didn't actually back you up. Does that ever happen? Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Unfortunately, in fact, it's fairly common. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why when we enter into a relationship with a client, we're really making sure that we've got, both got realistic expectations that we're going in as a united front. Because inevitably what happens, and sometimes this phase lasts for a day, and sometimes it's a week, and sometimes it's a month, and that's when it's really challenging. Uh, and sometimes it actually comes back. But in some ways, it's a step-parent syndrome. And look, I love step-parents. I have a wonderful stepmom. She's fantastic. So nothing against the role. 
I am a stepmom. There you go. (laughs) But sometimes when you've got the person, the coach, the consultant, whoever, and we serve a a particular role of of accountability, but also mostly support, particularly for our more tenured clients, we are the ones sort of tracking some of the results, providing the process, and it really will only work if it's coming from the top down. The doctor wants this to be done. And so if they're getting mixed messages and the doctor's like, well, I don't know, maybe we should just kind of try it your way, Susie, instead of yellow telescopes way. And let's, let's just, you know, maybe see if that's not working. And sometimes because doctors are so loyal to their team, sometimes the child in the relationship goes to dad and says, stepdad's being mean to me. And the reality is from a parenting perspective, if we really are trying to grow the practice, build the most positive relationship with the team and all the patients, we do have to have that united front. And so, yeah, I have to have some pretty direct conversations, you know, polite, but direct uh, with the doctor to say, well, we're not getting the results that you're hoping to get. And frankly, our most successful clients get booking 60 to 90% on the spot in the office and great growth year over year. And if we're not getting that, it's my job to look at why. It always goes down back to the process. Then we have to look at why the process isn't being followed. Um, and sometimes it comes down to the doctor kind of forgetting why this kind of works and why it's proven and tested in hundreds of practices. And so we kind of have to go down that path of sort of almost regaining their commitment to the process so that it works with the coordinator. So you're really a pro at having tough conversations? Yeah, no. have them every day, several times a day. I wonder what the next one's going to be today. But that's okay. You know, I think that the way we always talk about our relationship with practices, whether it's the coordinator, whether it's the doctor, whether it's the front office staff, medical technicians in medical office assistants, whoever it might be, we're practice facing. And I think that sometimes I, well, more often than not, my direct line of communication with the practice is the coordinator, is the administrator. Uh, We also do work with a lot of uh, ancillary providers, uh, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, nurse injectors. They're most often my direct line with the practice and where we're speaking to them every one to two weeks pretty thoroughly about everything that's going on in the practice. But I often also have to have a pretty candid conversation with the doctor about what is or is not going right. You don't bring us on board to help you because we're yes men or yes women. We're going to tell you what, what is not going right. And so... I send a report to each one of the clients after we speak to their team. And often I'll have to say, this person didn't book because you could have done X better in the consultation with the patient. Next time, it's good to remind yourself X, Y, Z. And this is a good reminder. Let your patient care coordinator prep you as far as qualities of patient care coordinators is that we don't want somebody who's wimpy. We want somebody who has a particular amount of professional strength. Now, of course, there has to be tons of respect for the doctor and the practice ownership. But at the same time, we do want someone who is going to be empowered by the doctor to almost be a partner and isn't going to be a yes man or yes woman. I use myself as an example. When I was a coordinator, the doctor would always have a busy, busy clinic day, coming right out of surgery, going right into clinics, follow-ups, consultations. And I've had a consultation who's been waiting because his case ran over and he just wants to run right into the room without letting me prep him. And he's like, hi, nice to meet you. And they're like, we were just at the same PTA meeting last week. Remember, I'm Susie you know, Jimmy's mom or something like that. And so let alone the fact that at this point, at least based on our process, you know, we we know patient care coordinator should be going in to see a patient prior to the doctor, learn about their medical history, find out what their goals are, educate them about the practice, the procedures, recovery, pricing, all those sorts of things. So I already would know kind of what the patient's hoping for, what their goals are, and let alone if they actually already met the doctor before. Um, So I want to make sure the doctor would never go in. And I would literally physically block the door 
and like hold the chart in my hand back in the days of paper charts and not let him in the door. And he would be rushing in and he'd stop. All right, Ed, what do you got? And he was almost a little frustrated, but I'm like, I'm about to save you from this. And this is basically, we, we sort of half joking, now fully jokingly call it the, the punch in the face patient. And they're like, this patient's going to book unless you punch them in the face. And they're like, just they're set up. They're good to go. It's yours to lose. It's yours to lose. That's the ultimate goal, I think, for, for a really trusted coordinator. I know from a lot of the work I've done in the past with surveying patients that the key driver of what makes a patient choose a surgeon is that that surgeon made them feel comfortable. And doctors are very data-driven, but they're also, it's kind of a weird combination of data-driven and anecdotal. Mm -hmm. So like, if you can help them understand the data that says making this person feel comfortable increases your likelihood of them choosing you, then you can back them out from that data point and say, here's how you're going to make them feel comfortable. And this is the process and these are the rules. Mm -hmm. And then it's not just Ed's opinion about how you do a consult. It's coming from a huge bank of data that says this is what works. Sure. And which also can be challenging sometimes because here we are now looking at something that's very objective, right? Here's the percentage. Here's the number of people we've seen. Here's the number that booked. And then something very subjective, which is the why. And there's so many nuanced steps, right, to a consultation from the initial phone call to them actually showing up in the office to the, the, the patient care coordinator pre-doctor consultation to the doctor themselves to how pricing is presented, et cetera. But the way we sort of describe it is a lot of it is perception, right? So one of the other things we'll look for in a patient care coordinator is an extremely high social IQ. We want somebody who has that also is coupled with sales. So one of the points I'm going to be talking about today is that we see a lot of people in the role who are very supporting, who are very nurturing, who are very sympathetic people, but can also be a bit dramatic. And so what we're really looking for is somebody who's no drama, but empathetic, somebody who can really feel what the patient is feeling, put themselves in their shoes, but at the same time, be no drama, be logical, and actually focus on those objective things like days for recovery, like percentage of risk, et cetera, of complication. Those sorts of things, coupled with all the data about the doctor and the practice and number of procedures they perform, providing all those data points to the patient while also being able to put themselves in their own emotional shoes, is so important when it comes to giving the patient that perception that they're being cared for. And frankly, even if the doctor's only in the consultation for 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes. Obviously, it'll be a little bit longer given the uh, complexity of the case, but I think it's a fallacy sometimes that doctors feel they have to be in the consultation with the patient for one hour. And then in order just to give the perception that they were caring, uh, every one of our clients usually on average doesn't spend more than about 15 minutes in consultation, but those patients are walking out, scheduling their procedure before even leaving the office and saying, this has been the best experience I've had thus far, even though they've only been with the the doctor for that long and because of the holistic nature of the experience. You're really covering the world that we can see, you know, that what the patient experiences once they're in the office, that doesn't even include all the things that happen before they come to the office when they pick up the phone or are they texting? Are they getting a response to their text right. fast enough? All these little variables that add up to a yes, there's probably thousands of them that were not even can't even track and, and aren't even considering mm -hmm. because we think their experience starts when they walk through the door. Right. 
Well, and of course, you know, that's really what your world is too, is often the pre-visit, right? The research phase, you know, how, how many months or even years have they been researching and following people's experiences on real self or reading the doctor's uh, answers, right, to their questions, uh, as well as, you know, the doctor's own website or their social media. Uh, and all these things have changed so rapidly as you and I even talk about offline, so often about just the nature of the decision-making process in some ways has shortened but it's also become much broader, right? Back in the day, you only had a few providers that you even knew about just because you looked up plastic surgeon in your insurance verification book. And now, of course, you've got so many more options out there, so many more resources that are available. It can be a little bit confusing, but it obviously also makes it that much more competitive. And so we're big believers in in the and philosophy. It's not real self or pay-per-click or a good social media presence or good referral base. It takes time to build those things. And, you know, we talk a lot about the priorities and where you should be focusing based on what stage your practice is in, but it's really everything, right? Because you never know where the patients are going to be looking. And as you talk about the thousands of variables, often it's many of them. So by having that consistency across the board and then having that reflected as soon as they finally get the guts to contact the office and having your patient care coordinator and team be able to handle those leads properly is is really what what makes all the difference. Mm -hmm. It all works together. So the patient coordinator, let's get back to the the subject at hand, Mm -hmm. needs to be open-minded, not wimpy. (laughs) What else? I think... I did mention a little bit about sort of the intrinsic motivation and sort of knack for sales. We believe sales is something you do for someone, not to someone. I've actually been relieved, frankly, over the last decade that, uh, you know, I've been involved in the industry to see this sort of attitude towards sales really kind of relax. Going back to your earlier question about what was it like being a guy patient care coordinator, there was a perception from other practices that our first doctor employed the bulldog closers. And of course, that wasn't the case, right? Because that just doesn't work. It's not effective in most sales, let alone something as delicate as a decision for a cosmetic procedure. And so at the same time, it's finding the people that have a knack for uh, a bit of a competitive drive that are driven to helping the person achieve their goal, but at the same time, recognize that they are also helping the practice and helping themselves in a way. I want somebody who's tied in and excited to be tied in to uh, the growth of the practice. And obviously, it varies a lot from state to state. And philosophically, there are some differences of opinion when it comes to incentivizing. We are firm believers, again, only having tested it many, many different ways in different structures. When legally allowable, figure out a way to incentivize your people. And I want somebody who is excited to have more commission. Again, not to talk them into doing a surgery that they shouldn't have, right? This is why we do something for people. Sales is something we're doing for them. This is assuming that the person is a great candidate. It's something that's reasonable for them to do. Uh, There's low risk, extremely high reward. It's financially comfortable for them. I mean, under no circumstances should somebody be forcing a 21-year-old to miss a rent payment for their breast augmentation. We just want and of course, we all come across those patients too who are like, I just, this is a need for me. I absolutely have to do this. And I also want somebody who's very, very comfortable saying, you know what, this might not be the right time for you to do this, or we may, may not be the best practice for you, even though they're incentivized. So it's finding somebody who has that social IQ 
but also is hungry to go find more patients to fill the schedule, but with the right patients that can be aligned with the type of patient the doctor's really looking for. I was just having flashbacks of all the interesting ways I've seen people fund their own breast augmentations over the years without skipping their rent. <laughs> Do you remember some of those? Like the, oh man, the things I found in Google Analytics reports were such an education. Oh, it is. I mean, and as a patient care coordinator, you're on the front lines. And particularly if you're working in a high volume practice, I mean, when I was a a coordinator, it was a high end practice, but it was also popular. I mean, we had a million independent visitors to the website every month and we were getting hundreds of leads a month. And so uh, I talked to a lot of people from all over the world about their motivations and why they would want to do things. And I now talk to coordinators globally, largely across North America, and they'll tell me some crazy anecdotes. And I'll be the first one to say that the husband who calls in for his wife's procedure, I'm like, I always say, before they even talk about a consultation, you've got to talk to two people, the person recovering and the person paying. Now, more often than not, they're the same person, but you know, you also get the Najee mom who doesn't want her single son to have hair loss anymore, and she calls to make his appointment. And so things like that. And she's like, you know, does the patient even really want this? So you get these tricky, sticky situations sometimes, but we shouldn't just fall into the trap as a good salesperson, an excited salesperson that wants to be able to build the practice to just say, oh, just because I've got somebody who says they want to buy something, I want to bring them in. We still have to dive in and make sure it's for the right reasons and making sure we're talking to the right people. So that care coordinator, they're really the front line. They're the number one reason that a practice is successful or not successful. Yes. I mean, most of the time. Oh, yeah. I mean, I always say a couple of things. Number one, patients or prospects call the practice because of the doctor, but they show up or they book because of the coordinator. So if we're in the process of looking for a new coordinator or even trying to coach the coordinator we have Mm -hmm. to perform better, Mm -hmm. maybe this is a great person who just needs some training, what kinds of tools do you use to pre-qualify that hire or help that patient coordinator get better at their job? Well, it's interesting. I mean, I have this conversation a lot because we literally partner with the practice to work with that coordinator. And whether it's, you know, during the conversation as to whether the practice is thinking about bringing us on or maybe they already have. And now what we have to take a look at is, are we going to work with the existing person or are we going to help you hire somebody new? And so often the doctor says to me, well, did you want to do a personality test? Do you want to do an interview with her or him? What do you want to do to help sort of determine things? My typical response is, well, we can certainly do that. I've personally interviewed, you know, over 5,000 people in my career. I, you know, between me and John and Dan, it's probably more like 15,000 with our team. I mean, I, I like to think I'm a very quick and fairly accurate judge of character, certainly. And I've actually done it in the past. What I've learned is that it's less about what I think about the coordinator and really what the practice thinks. And so I will sort of plainly ask the doctor, do you think this person has what it takes to be your ideal patient care coordinator? Are they moldable? Are they hungry? Are they excited to help you grow the practice? Do they have the innate traits we're looking for from social IQ to intrinsic sales ability? But they just need the right training and right processes? Or do you think they're not the right fit? Because one of the points we talk about is our processes, you know, we've proven, but frankly, if they don't have the right person, the the processes won't work. So 
it's largely a personal decision with the practice. Now, I look at my role often as sort of saving jobs. I kind of usually prefer to work with somebody who's existing and promote from within the practice if we can. Of course, it makes our job a little harder because they have already got their previous processes and habits already ingrained. And now it's our job to sort of shift those a little bit, which is harder than bringing somebody who is coming in brand new to the practice and then learns our processes and really has never learned any other way to do it. But now we've got a higher learning curve from them at the local level with the team and the particular procedures. So it's always a little bit of a balance as to are we going to try to replace the person or are we going to work with the person that we have? I'll typically lean towards the latter if we can, but ultimately we'll also replace them if it doesn't work out too. And you help people find post, you help them post job descriptions and search for a candidate regardless of what city they live in or if they're rural or big city, it doesn't matter. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And of course, we have to get creative sometimes, as you mentioned, rural, like depending on the particular market. But yeah, we craft the job ads. We post the job ads. Uh, we field the, all the candidates. Uh, we do the initial screenings for all those candidates. And then once we've found candidates that we think that they should consider, we present them to the practice. Ultimately, it's their decision as to who they'd like to bring in for live interviews. But we'll even coach the doctor. And I kind of insist on it sometimes because if I've done all this work and my team's done all this work to present excellent candidates. It's, it's almost like when I was a patient care coordinator, I'm like, this is your punch in the face candidate. <laughs> I'm like, this person wants to work with you and trust me, they're excellent. It's your interview to screw up because it is a two-way street. And particularly in the current job market that we're in, I mean, you want somebody with some college, quote unquote, you know, 98% of them have a job. Unemployment rate's 2%. So, you know, it's, it's not... 2010 anymore. And it's really employees market. And so I talked to a lot of doctors who are like, well, there's a little bit of ego. Of course you have to, but they're like, well, I'm, you know, this is a growing practice. This is a great opportunity. They should be lucky to be here. I'm like, well, kind of, yes, that's true. I think I agree. It's a great opportunity, but don't think they don't have three others they might be considering. And besides, they kind of have a job. There isn't a ton of urgency right now because everyone I interview has to give notice. They're looking for greater pay. They're looking for greater upside opportunity, a better work environment. It's not to the point where they're like, I just need to find something right now. So it's interesting. It certainly is. What's the craziest crossover you've, you've ever seen someone transition from into being a, a patient coordinator? Uh, you mean other than male real estate salesperson in his 20s? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> other than you. <laughs> yeah. uh, we've actually seen people from a variety of backgrounds. I think that we always do try to look for some medical, for some sales. Gosh, I'm trying to think. I had a, uh, I recently staffed a position for a uh, cosmetic surgeon in Texas. And uh, the woman was, for the last 15 years, managing charity auctions for nonprofits, schools. Boy, I can see that crossing over really well because that that work, it's mostly volunteer work. So maybe yep. she was being paid, but you're you're out asking for things for free from people constantly and then selling those things right. for a price that they're is much higher than they're actually worth. So Right. And also dealing with lots of personalities, you know. I mean, it was interesting because it was completely unrelated to the job. I mean, she is now a patient care coordinator for a completely vaginal rejuvenation-based practice. And part of it was, she's like, well, I've worked with a lot of women. And I'm like, well, that's great, but this is a little different than talking about their 4-H club raising money or something. It's delicate work. And so it was interesting because, again, it was the fact that we weren't necessarily looking for the specific experience or even the fact that we needed the sales experience, but can she sell? 
does she have the intrinsic ability to connect with people, particularly with that demographic and particularly with such a delicate procedure? And she's been in the job for about five weeks now, and she books 70, 80% of people on the spot because she can follow the process as her doctor's supportive, and she's still learning a lot. You know, we have a lot to talk about in her calls because it's very early as far as the patient interactions, but she's a great personality. She gets along with people very well. She relates to and the patients. And certainly she believes in the work because someone like that is mission-driven. Oh, absolutely. And so that's the common thread between those those two things is that, that she was... She really believed in the mission of both things. What we always like to say is, uh, I am sold myself, I-A-S-M. You know, you can't sell anything if you don't believe in it. And it's funny, you talk to some salespeople, I interview a lot of them, and they're like, well, you know, I could sell ice to an Eskimo. I'm like, well, how much do you really believe in the ice? It's really all about if you think your doctor is the absolute best. We talk a lot about how in this sort of sale, if you will, you can't feel bad trying to get the patient to pick your doctor. Because if you really truly feel they're the best compared to anyone else in the area, whether it's patient care, whether it's results, outcome, you know, limited risk, et cetera, you might actually be saving the other person's life. There are a lot of, unfortunately, very negligent doctors who charge a lot less. And you know, we live in a city like Miami that unfortunately, tragically, a couple times a year, there's a headline because somebody in a strip mall didn't follow best practices and a poor patient wasn't educated enough to be able to know the difference. And so as a patient care coordinator, you actually have a responsibility, I think, to the patient to educate them to make sure that they are picking your doctor. Because if they go somewhere else, who knows what what that could be. So it's really important. I see all the stories. Yeah. Almost in real time. And uh, on Real Self, we started um, flagging those profiles and actually warning consumers when Mm -hmm. there's a license restriction or a license action. And to my knowledge, there's no other site that does it that visibly. Mm -hmm. There's a few others where you can find it if you dig. Right. But we're putting it right, basically right in the headline and saying this this person's license is revoked or restricted, which is a big step forward for, for patient safety. Oh, for transparency and being a patient advocate. Absolutely. So... Before we wrap it up, there's one question we ask every guest on this podcast, which is, what is your superpower? And I always have an idea of what someone's superpower is, but it's really better coming from you. So what is your superpower, Ed? (laughs) Well, you you told me this question was coming, and of course, I don't know how to answer it. And so, of course, my initial response was being humble, (laughs) (laughs) which probably also isn't necessarily very true either. Um, You know, I'd like to think that... uh, you know, when I was a kid, my mom said, oh, you should go into sales. You got the gift of gab. And maybe that's why I'm chatting, partially why I'm chatting with you today. But I'd like to think that it's hopefully the ability to build a somewhat deeper relationship with someone in a shorter amount of time. I I do try to be approachable. I try to be interested uh, in what other people are thinking. I try to be empathetic and think about what they are thinking and what they're feeling. And so... You can call it many different things, but I guess if you wanted to distill it down, it is that I, I, I try to build a deeper relationship with people in a shorter amount of time. I like it. Thank you for sharing your wisdom with us. Before we wrap it up, I want to hear just one more thing. Sure. Tell us about your new program called Reception Scope. I know that people are really interested in what you're doing, and I, I want to make sure that the audience hears about that too. Oh, I appreciate it. 
Yeah. So, you know, we've been around since 2008 and our services have developed a lot over the years, particularly with, uh, you know, our forming SE oversight about eight years ago and then Ice Cream Social Media three, four years ago. And but with Yellow Telescope, even since day one, we only really had two offerings and it was long term practice management, consulting and staffing training, comprehensive package or come to our annual seminar which even then is somewhat more costly than going to some of the society meetings and things like that. So for your front office training, which is one of the most frequent requests we would get, we really didn't have a cost-effective way to be able to offer direct, consistent training to those people, which are so important and often underappreciated in the staff. I and mean, we've been talking for the last however long about the patient care coordinator being the true front line, and I think they are in a lot of ways. But before they even get to the coordinator, they're talking to reception. They're talking to the front desk. And so the front desk is really the front line. Unfortunately, partially because it's not the most highly paid position in the practice. Um, And I also think there are some misconceptions of, frankly, even the level of person that you need in the practice. Uh, A lot of times uh, uh, they'll think, well, you know, just somebody bubbly who can kind of answer the phone and whatever will be enough. But you do have to have a particular amount of social IQ and also an ability to follow specific processes because it can be a thankless job when you've got five phone lines ringing and you've got a waiting room full of patients and you've got people checking out, the doctor asking you a question, there's a lot going on. And then of course, at the same time, there are other times when it's, when it's crickets. So what do you do at the, during those times to be more productive? So Reception Scope by Yellow Telescope is a monthly webinar that anyone from the practice can log into. Uh, it's typically mid-month. Uh, we try to you know, make it convenient for all of our clients across coast to coast, although we do have some in the UK and even as far west as Hawaii. So good news is uh, also, even if you aren't able to listen to it that day, if you happen to be in an appropriate time zone, it is recorded. So you'll be able to listen to it for up to 30 days uh, after the airing. So The focus is going to vary a lot um, from month to month. And in fact, even though we've got the next year of them kind of already lined up, uh, we're also expecting to hear some great feedback from practices about specifically what uh, they want to hear, whether it's just about the basics of patient care and patient coordination at the front desk to some more advanced topics. We did one recently on ancillary provider schedule management, for example. We're going to be doing a lot on obtaining more reviews and ratings online, like from RealSelf, for example greater content for your marketing and social media, cross-promotion between surgical and non-surgical sides of the practice, promoting products and things like that that are often an afterthought what we think of and found to be you know, kind of missed opportunities. So we're excited about it. We've got some great early feedback from it. We've got a lot of folks already signed up and um, yeah, we appreciate your, your interest in it as well. No, it's going to fill a big need in the, in the space and really make it a difference for lots of people. So I'm glad you're doing it. Thanks. And I want to just thank you for sharing all your wisdom today. Thanks for having me. It's been great. As always, I really appreciate it. Yeah, let's do it again. I'm ready. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Eva. Thanks for listening to the Real Self University podcast. The mission of Real Self is to create a world where every investment in modern beauty is worth it. And Real Self University is here to help aesthetic professionals do just that. The mission of our podcast is to uncover stories and data from our industry's most interesting and successful personalities. If you'd like to be a guest on the Real Self University podcast, have feedback or questions, email university at realself.com. Support us and help us keep this effort going by subscribing to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like more information about becoming Real Self Verified, go to realself.com slash network and enter referral code podcast to receive 50% off your first full month of Real Self Spotlights. 
I'm your host and producer, Eva Shea. Our post-production is by Daniel Cruiser. All of our learning and practice development resources are available on demand at university.realself.com.